0: Welcome to Insights, a production of Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. I'm Alan Hunter with our Define Contribution Institutional team, and with me today is Ann Lester, Head of Retirement Solutions, and Catherine Roy, Chief Retirement Strategist, all with Morgan Asset Management. Today's episode is entitled, How Averages Mislead in DC Plans, and is for institutional and professional investors. We often rely on averages when evaluating retirement readiness, yet averages can often be distorting because no one ever is actually average. In today's discussion, Ann and Catherine will explore how changes in key variables, such as the number of years in retirement and rising health care costs, can dramatically impact an individual's success or failure at achieving a financially secure retirement. When we sit down with plan sponsors, we found that many of them are asking us the same questions. How much do participants really need at retirement? How much should they save? And how should they be investing their money leading up to that point? Now, Anne, you and your team have done a lot of research around those questions. What have you found? When we
1: decided to go ahead and write this paper, we really believed very strongly that it was important not just to answer the question as we typically do from the perspective of a plan sponsor or the perspective of a financial advisor who understands how everything works and understands the broad picture, but to really drill into it from the perspective of the individual. And it's by putting ourselves in that individual's shoes that I think we can help you all frame these choices in a compelling way for your clients. When we think about the averages, we have to understand that, first and foremost, there's a lot hiding behind an average. An awful lot goes up into making an average. Average Joe is literally the average of all of these statistics for the American workforce. He's 42 years old. He's had some college. He's earning $57,000 a year. His salary growth from today forward is sort of moderate. He's saving at 5% of his total salary. Now, that is 3.7% of his own paycheck and 1.4% in a matching contribution from his employer. And as of today, when he's 42 years old, he's got $25,000 saved up in his 401k plan and $18,000 in his IRA. Now, I'm sure if we went and looked for Joe and the millions and millions and millions of American workers, we might find somebody who looks like this, but frankly, he's made up. And behind Joe are a whole bunch of different people, the Marys and the Phils, if you will, who are very, very different in their makeup. But when you put them all together, you get average Joe. Now, Mary, for instance, is younger. She's just starting out, highly educated, not terribly high salary now, but it's got a lot of growth potential in the future. She's not saving very much, but we would expect her savings rate to start increasing rapidly from today. Phil, on the other hand, is at the end of his career— He's 60 years old. He doesn't have a lot of time left, got a much lower degree of education, and although his salary is significantly higher than Mary's is today, it's not really going to grow much from here. So when we compare and contrast these two stories and the help they need, the advice they need, it's actually not the same. And so what we thought we'd do in this analysis is really start digging into how different it could be. Now, we could run you through 5 or 10 or 15 different scenarios with different people, and we thought about doing that, in fact, but we realized actually what might be even more powerful is to start with the averages and then start manipulating a couple of the key assumptions that people make so that we can understand how off those forecasts should be and how, frankly, suboptimal— bad is another word, Um, some of the advice might be if we really focus on only the averages.
0: Thank you for that overview. And Catherine, why don't we turn it over to you to discuss some of the variables in more detail?
2: We wanted to really compile similar to how we got to the average person. What is kind of the average assumption that many of us use in those retirement plan forecasts? And what are the range of things if we wanted to stress test or understand which of these variables has the biggest effect on someone's actual outcome. And so the variables we wanted to stress test or we wanted to understand, which are really fundamental to anyone's long-term retirement plan, is when they retire. And that's also, for our purposes, when they start taking Social Security. So those are very interlinked with each other, we know, behaviorally, and we did that within this analysis as well. So not only are they stopping work at these ages, but they're also claiming Social Security. And for that particular variable, we know you know, the average attitude of an individual is to retire 65. Desired retirement age still is very much linked to Medicare eligibility, the average experienced retirement age today continues to be 62, but yet there's so much greater benefit someone might receive from 70. So that's kind of the stress test that we do around that base case 65 year old assumption, which again, many of you use for your clients in their retirement plans. Life expectancy is a biggie, and it's one I know that we spend a lot of time talking a lot about. We know many planning tools use 90 as the end analysis age, so we like to call it, because that's really average life expectancy rounded up to a certain value. But you could use the average, which would be 83, between men and women, or we would argue you should stress test out to 100, given some of the characteristics that your clients have. So we'll talk a little bit more about that later as well.
0: What about healthcare? the big question on everyone's mind?
2: Healthcare is your client's number one expense concern or cost concern throughout retirement, really across all affluence levels. And so we do a lot of work within the guys' retirement to give you an average. You know, We're also going to stress test, based upon all the data that we collect, what is a high-cost individual that's really driven by high prescription drug expenses. But what about that healthy-for-life person, that person that's going to 100 in great shape? What might their expenses look like at the opposite end of that spectrum?
0: Now, what about long-term care? How do you think plan sponsors should think about that? When we have conversations with plan sponsors, many feel, I think that their participants don't really know how significant those costs can be.
2: Usually long-term care costs is completely vacant from the assumptions, but we wanted to test the average experience, which would be two years. And a five-year experience, which we know is a 10% chance someone might experience that long or greater of a period of time in a nursing home, which on average in the United States costs about $82,000. But again, we'll talk about that range later. And then from an investment return perspective, which I know Anne, you're completely more focused on than I am, you know, we used 5 to 6% because we did look at the observed equity decisions that people make in the data that we have over the course of their accumulating years. And so that's really that average of five to six percent. But we know that based on the Dalbar study, people's actual experienced, you know, asset allocated results, if they're doing it themselves, is about 2.3%. So we wanted to use that as the worst case scenario. But we also know that end investors have continually had unrealistic expectations about what rate of return they're actually thinking they would be able to generate. We know that's based on a recent survey about 8.5% above inflation. So those types of rosy returns we wanted to also look at as well. So what are the results when we combine the kind of the average Joe with the average base case scenario where the result is a little bleak? Joe, if he continues to just save that 5%, which also includes the employer match, as Anne mentioned. And if he wants to spend at a rate that's equal to 100% of his current discretionary spending because Joe isn't saving very much and he's getting used to a really high lifestyle, unfortunately Joe depletes all of his assets by the time he turns 72 and he'd have to save a whole lot more, which we'll get to in a second.
0: So what would his cash flows look like now?
2: Well, his diligent 5% savings over the course of his career really only fills the gap for a little bit more than four years. So Joe doesn't necessarily drop down to zero in terms of what he can support. Obviously, Social Security is making up for about half of what his spending target is. But we see just how short Joe actually ends up when we use both his average profile with some average assumptions.
0: Thinking about Joe, what if we assume Joe is going to retire at 65 And he wants his money to last until, let's say, he's 90, which is a suitably prudent case of longevity, at least in my opinion. What would Joe have to do?
1: In order to hit that target, Joe would have to save 16% from today forward. So he would have to triple his savings rate, more than triple his savings rate. And that's a big jump to make.
0: And now what would happen if he retired earlier?
1: If he retired at age 62, he would have to save 25% of his salary if he wanted to retire three years earlier. Now, I like to think of this as the triple whammy effect of three years less savings, Mm -hmm. three years additional spending from his savings, but really most dramatically and tragically, and I think Catherine's going to walk through this in more detail in a bit, Also, the really huge effect of claiming Social Security early, which will drop his income for the rest of his life. So those three things together are really astonishingly impactful. Now, on the flip side, if you can work a little longer, and from here it's 65 to 70, his savings rate actually can drop, which, again, is a really shocking result, I think, for many people. The combination of five years extra savings, five years less depletion of his pool of capital, and the additional benefit from Social Security means that he suddenly is in fine shape from here on out if he can just plan for that future of continuing to work. Now, we all know that many people don't have the luxury of planning how long they have to work, so we're not sure it's prudent to assume that you should retire at 70 and drop your savings rate, but we do think it's important for people to understand. It's a huge trade-off. I think the The impact that that has on most people is relatively poorly understood and something I think we all should be helping people understand more.
0: And as we think about life expectancy, how does life expectancy impact our outcomes?
1: You'd imagine that life expectancy would have the same lever as Social Security claiming age and retirement age. And in fact, it matters, but not quite as much. Looking at life expectancy, you can see if he's going to retire at 65, he continues to need 16% in savings. Now... Let's say he lives a lot longer. Let's say he lives another decade. How much more would he have to save? Well, only 3% more. He'd only have to save 19%. Because of the power of compound returns lasting for so long, he doesn't really have that same sort of huge impact that you might imagine. And conversely, not living as long, right, if he dies at 83, seven years earlier, doesn't have much of a beneficial effect either, frankly. You still have to be saving 13%. So you can see the power of the lever of retirement age, working, saving, and Social Security claiming dramatically outweigh the sort of power or the leverage of life expectancy. So it's, again, something we think a lot of people should be focusing on.
0: Now, Anne, it goes without saying, investment returns are obviously incredibly important in these scenarios. Can you talk a little bit about our assumptions there?
1: Now, that 5 to 6% return that we mentioned is, again, that asset allocation of that individual. And it's not unlike what many people are getting in their QDIA programs. It's a balanced account, essentially, using our capital market assumptions. And we think a sort of 5 to 6% is an appropriate forward-looking estimation of returns. If they are, in fact, as bad as many individuals generate down at the 2% level, again, that individual, Joe, would have to save 26%. That's five times higher. That's astonishing. And if the markets were as good as he may hope, he really wouldn't have to save a whole lot from here on out, 1%, right? So that's, again, an extremely powerful lever. And again, you can imagine why so many people want to think about returns being in the high single digits or low double digits, that's what built wealth that the baby boomers have today, those very high returns when they were in their 40s and 50s. And I think it would be nice if we thought that was going to be happening soon, but that's really not anything we see in the near future.
2: In terms of a comparative point, again, health care comes up always as the number one concern, but long-term care, if you look at the impact on the amount of savings that would be required, it has a significantly greater effect than the ongoing costs related to Medicare and Medicare Advantage. And so the size of the capsule really is dictated by the effect of a long-term care you know the capsule that tells you how much you need to save if someone experiences you know five year experience of nursing home care which we know you know three in four women are going to need some sort of care on average is two years but there's a 1 in 10 chance it's five years so not reflecting or not including long-term care at all but not helping your clients understand the kind of worst case or 90th percentile type of experience and what that might mean particularly because it occurs late in life, I think is a key shortcoming that we need to continue to address. And so we wanted to look at this also a little bit differently. So what if Joe actually took our advice of increasing it by three times? What if he said, look, okay, I'll increase to 16% so that based on our base case scenario, which originally runs out at 72, if he commits to making that higher savings rate, as we've talked about, he's going to get to age 90. But then we know, and we use this term a lot, that life happens. Things can come about that after he's made the decision to make the really strong commitment to make that savings rate, what if he then is faced with... The triple whammy, I think, as you put it, Anne, that he has to retire at 62 instead of 65 we see that he runs out at 74. So that's 16% savings, so three times the savings rate doesn't necessarily immunize him against having to leave the workforce potentially three years earlier. And then likewise, if we look at, okay, what happens then if he actually does generate just 1% less than what we assumed in the base case, so he earns about 4%, that's a little bit better. He still makes it to 83. But if he then, instead of incurring average healthcare costs, What if he has higher health care costs, he has high prescription drug costs, and incurs a two-year nursing home stay? We see just how much that type of an expense affects him, and he runs out of money at age 79.
0: So, Catherine, how do we actually move beyond averages? How do or how can plan sponsors communicate the underlying risks in retirement to participants? And what are those risks?
2: I think my learning with this research, we spend a lot of time, my team and I talking about the right inputs that go into people's retirement plans, and we do use a lot of averages, like use average life you know above average life expectancy, use average healthcare care costs. And I think what's interesting is thinking about stress testing plans, just like we, run a thousand or two thousand or depending upon your firm, ten thousand Monte Carlo simulations to stress test investment returns. I'm not sure we're doing a good enough job stress testing people's behaviors or their choices that they're making and helping them understand the trade-offs that those might bring or at least the range of outcomes they're likely to experience from a behavioral perspective as well, because these variables are as impactful, obviously, as the investment returns. So diving in, I'm just going to cover life expectancy. Briefly, we could go on for hours around life expectancy. But the reality is that the longer you live, the longer you're going to live. If you're 65 today, what is the probability of living to a specific age or beyond? If you plan to an average life expectancy, right, there still is a 50% chance that you, your spouse, might continue to be alive. And so that's why we show this chart in terms of the odds of living to these ages or beyond while putting the average life expectancy in the floating box up above. And again, thinking of this as the average life expectancy is at midpoint, not an endpoint. We know you likely spend a lot of time with your clients talking about the fact that they're likely to be above average in their life expectancy, given their characteristics, which we know are highly correlated to longer lives: education, income, uh, good health behaviors, but you know, potentially family history will move people pretty quickly to the right on this chart. And so, our guidance and in, in terms of this research. If your planning tool is using 90 as the end analysis age, you know I think that's a little risky because there's a 48% chance or almost a 50-50 chance that one part of a married couple will live beyond that age. And so we might be not as conservative as we should be relative to helping people plan for the long term, particularly as trends continue in terms of our longevity. And so we would argue, you know, at least 30 years. At least you're then at a 20% chance that one of you will live to that age or beyond. And I would encourage you to even stress test 100 years or 110 years, just to make sure people are comfortable that they have the right understanding of the risk of how living a long time, what that might mean for them. And then obviously with people living longer, there's a desire to work later, but as Anne I think did such a great job showing, the conundrum is we don't have complete control over how long we work, and that does have that triple effect. What if
0: someone needs to retire early?
2: The median retirement age again is expected still to be 65, but that's what people want but the actual experienced one is three years earlier. So highlighting that to your clients and really talking to them about that risk. I mean, the percentages change year over year, but the drivers of people leaving the workforce early don't. And the top five, which are green, you do not often have complete control over, health problems and disability obviously being the biggest one and obviously the biggest risk. So if you can't control those things, helping your clients understand the impact, if that were to happen to them or life happens in that way, should they be saving more or should they be pursuing other strategies such as long-term disability insurance to help them protect their retirement nest egg. And then obviously, as Ann talked about, the second part of the triple whammy, or the third part, I've forgotten which number it was, is often when people retire early, they take Social Security at a permanently reduced amount. And we also just like to highlight Social Security is increasingly, i.e. over the next five years, going to make it even more painful for individuals given our move from 66 to 67 as full retirement age it'll be a 30% haircut for that unfortunate situation if someone leaves the workforce 3 years earlier which is part of the reason why right the outcome of that stress test it was obviously not very good so moving on just to touch on healthcare and long term care these last two major topics before I turn it back to Anne. We know that healthcare is your client's number one concern. Even in the plan space, obviously balancing healthcare costs and retirement savings is a key focus. We would recommend that you start with an average here and I'll talk to you a little bit about the range. So the average experience on traditional Medicare based on all of the data that we buy and analyze every year, this year is $5,140. That is a per-person, per-year value. And we would encourage you to use a 6.5% growth rate on that because not only is healthcare one of the fastest inflating categories, but you buy so much more of it as you get older and you need to factor that in to that inflation rate. So that is what I'd encourage you to think about using for your base case where we see the greatest variability in experienced healthcare costs. It's really around prescription drug usage. So to do the what if around the high side, we see about three times this $1,000 number for out-of-pocket prescription drug expense to be about the 90th percentile Out of pocket experience for individuals that we've analyzed. So, you know, add about $2,000 more to this number and use that 6.5% inflation rate really as a good starting point to model that high cost healthcare individual and help people understand just, you know, the order of magnitude that healthcare is going to potentially mean for them. It still is going to be less than long term care.
0: Now, we do know there's about a one in three chance that a man might need some sort of long term care. What about women?
2: Women have really bad odds because again the more likely you are to need long term care that's not necessarily a good thing. And one of the reasons why men have great odds or at least married men have great odds is that you know women tend to be caregivers and then men unfortunately tend to pass away. And so 80% of American men die married, 80% of American women die single, and so therefore even if you look at single individuals at older ages, i.e. the all individuals at 75, women continue to have a very high risk of needing some sort of long-term care. So that's where I think, again, we looked at Average Joe. We probably should be looking also at Average Mary at some point and looking at, you know, obviously the, all the dynamics that face women, of which this is a really key topic.
0: And we focused a lot today on the participant. What about, though, from a plant sponsor's perspective?
1: It's different in D.C., partly because... A plan sponsor or their advisor is really thinking about the whole plan. And so starting with averages there makes all kinds of sense. You really do need to look at the entirety of the plan. But one of the things we really want to stress is not stopping there and understanding what the range of participant behavior is and expected experiences. And then, as Catherine said, stress testing your plan For the entire range of your population. Before I dive into what that could look like in a little more depth, I do think there are three clear takeaways that we should be focusing on for the defined contribution plan. Now, number one, and I hope we made this point clearly, the number one thing anybody can do to improve their retirement success, regardless of the uncertainties and regardless of the scenarios that end up playing out, is save more. Start saving and save more is the most important thing we can do, and it's really adopting automatic features. We know that individuals who are auto-enrolled and auto-escalated, i.e. their savings rates are automatically increased annually, tend to stick with the plan. They know they should be doing it, and when someone helps them do it, they are very receptive to this. We know this through surveys that we've conducted as well as others. So to us, that's critically important. Now, the second thing that we would say is investment returns do matter a great deal. As we showed, even a 1% drop in investment returns throughout the course of somebody's life can mean really catastrophic results, losing seven years of wealth, frankly, or that could sustain seven years of spending in retirement. And we know individuals left to their own devices tend to make decisions that are not optimal. They tend to buy high and sell low, which we believe is some of what's driving that return gap that we see published in surveys like Dalbar. And then finally, we think conducting a re-enrollment is extremely important. Now, many people define these terms differently, but essentially, once you've set up a great plan, once you've set up those automatic features, we think it's appropriate to periodically go back and put your employees into those great features automatically and let them opt out. We do believe that that is the most consistent way to make sure people stay on track. And again, people's lives change from year to year. They opted out last year because of a life event. They might not have chosen to go back and sign themselves up, but they may be able to sustain that level of saving going forward. So we think those are three key things that we know will make a material difference in the retirement success of employees. Now, the other thing that we know is that the range of behaviors that individuals exhibit when they're left to their own devices is pretty extreme. And what we've done here is highlight some pretty eye-opening statistics regarding the behavior in terms of saving and spending in and out of a 401k account. Again, let's just pick on contributions at age 25. The median or middle of the distribution is 4% at age 25, bottom is 2%, upper end is 8%. We would all agree that's probably not quite enough. It doesn't get a lot better, though. By the time people are 50, the bottom is still 2%, and this is of anybody saving at all, right? So you have to be saving something. The middle of that distribution range has only gotten up to 6%, so still 50% of the people are at 6% or below. On the upper end, there's some people who've really gotten the message, gotten with the program and are saving a lot. But that average, right, that middle of the pack is still skewing way below rates that we think are appropriate. And again, I just think it's astonishing to look at pre retirement distributions. Again, we know from the data that approximately one in six individuals takes a distribution from their plan after the age of 59 and a half every year. And as a size of their balance, those pre retirement distributions, while people are still working, is the middle of that distribution 43 percent? So, on average, again, people are taking you know 43 percent or more, 50 percent of the people who take anything out after the age of 59 and a half while they're still working, before they've retired, are taking significant distributions from their plan. So, again, this behavior we think is important for plan sponsors to understand and their advisors so that they can both help to d- design features in the plan to help message around these things, possibly automatically. Put people back on track but also when they think about their investment options and so as Catherine said we believe it's important to do monte carlo simulations and understand the distribution of behavior dynamically as you're thinking about choices and not just do that for the market we have published a great deal of research over the past decade where we do precisely that take this observed behavior to understand what the edges of that behavior look like and not just the median or expected behavior. We do think that's an important point of reference for plan sponsors to understand and to dig into. So as we think about moving beyond the averages, we'd like to close here by really trying to understand the implications for the entire ecosystem that we are faced with when we think about our retirement system here in this country. Number one, for individuals and employees, you know, save more now. And that's true for individuals working with a financial advisor as well as individuals in their 401k plan. And if possible, work with someone who can help you understand some of these trade offs earlier rather than later. When we're looking at financial advisors to employers, people who are working with defined contribution plans, it's really be a proactive partner. Help them understand what might be hiding inside of the data that they're already getting and to urge them to dig below some of these averages because averages can be misleading. And stress test these plans for the entire population. Don't just focus on the average participant or the participant that's behaving the way you wish they would. For record keepers and plan providers, understand the data and make sure that you're making it available to those decision makers. Help illustrate how participants are allocating their money. Now, my classic example, and having sat through a number of committee meetings, is to have a pie chart that shows the allocation of a DC plan. Now, if you exclude the QDIA or the target date fund or the balance fund, you're typically left with a very pretty pie chart that shows eight or ten asset classes. And when you look at that asset allocation, it looks like a well-diversified balance fund. 60% in equity, 70% in equity, small cap, large cap, international equity, fixed income, it's all there. And so a lot of people look at that pie chart and think, great, my plan is diversified. What they often don't do is ask, how many funds people own. And if you look at a distribution of funds, the 50th percentile, that middle of the pack number is three funds for the individuals. So three people, and now excluding target date funds, excluding people who own balanced accounts, Most individuals do not own anything that looks anything like that pie chart because they only own one or two or three funds. There's no way they can have any real diversification that we would say is going to give them an appropriate chance of getting to their retirement goals. Now, again, for employers, make sure you're asking for that data and make sure you're thinking about proactively putting your participants on a path to save and to save consistently and to get the best investment returns they possibly can. And then finally, we are increasingly trying to have a larger voice in the public debate that's happening with policymakers and academics around some of these topics. And we think it's incredibly important to be encouraging those conversations to focus on something beyond averages.
0: And Catherine, thank you both for joining us today on Insights. This is clearly very important work. For the plan sponsors listening, we hope you were able to walk away from today's discussion with actionable insights for your own plan. As Ann mentioned, a good place to start is asking for the data behind your participant base to understand the full picture. We encourage you to use the tools available to you, such as automatic enrollment, escalation, and re-enrollment to put your participants on a path to a more secure retirement. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on November 13th, 2017.
3: The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, If any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals, investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chasing Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by JP Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or JP Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by JP Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co reg number 197601586K or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited. Co reg number 201120355E. In Taiwan, by JP Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by JP Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan, SA. In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Canada, Incorporated, and in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.